Well, good morning, Christ Church. If you don't know, my name is Kurt Meir. I'm the youth director and pastoral intern here, and, and I hope, and by God's uh, good providence, I hope to be assistant pastor here uh, in just a couple of months. This morning, I'll be preaching from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, the first 11 verses. But if I could, I'd ask you actually to turn back a chapter to chapter 3. And I'll begin reading uh, chapter 3 and verse 16 through the end of the chapter and then into chapter 4 to give us a little bit of understanding and context. I'll read the text, and then I will ask the Lord to bless us as only he can do. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us this day. Help us to be humble and to see your word in its glory and power. Help us, O Lord, to see our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, more clearly through your word. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I was reading that text, you probably could tell this is a very familiar text. It's a very famous scene, that of Jesus being tempted in the desert by none other than Satan himself. It's a scene that so many Christians are familiar with. They know this story, at least on a surface level. And certainly it's a story that teaches us a great deal. It teaches us about temptation, about Satan and how he works in the world and how he tempts Christians. It also teaches us how to fight sin by teaching us how to rely upon God's word. But more importantly than the lessons it teaches us, it also gives us a picture of our Savior. It sets before you Jesus Christ And it shows you something about his character, about his power, and even about 
his redemption. Something that you and I need to see from this text this morning. Well, to get through the text, I've got four main points. First, the purpose of the testing. That is, what is the reason for this testing? Why go into the desert at all? And then my final three points are very simple. The first test, the second test, and the third test. And we'll examine each one and see what we learn and how it is that Jesus overcomes. Well, let's start with the first point, the purpose of the testing. And for this, we really need to go back to chapter 3. That's why I started this uh, reading with uh, going back to chapter 3, because there we find an important scene that if we didn't understand that, we wouldn't be able to understand the temptation. And that scene in chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus. It's a Trinitarian scene. When you come into the text, you see the Son of God coming up out of the river. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. And then you see heaven open up, and the Spirit of God comes out, and he descends upon the Son of God, almost anointing him like a great prophet of old. And then the Father speaks, and he makes this declaration. He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's a dramatic statement. It's a statement that is filled and brimming full of expectation. There was so much packed into this idea of one who would be called the Son of God. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the one who comes to accomplish the will of the Father. He's the one who comes wielding the Spirit. He's the one who comes bringing salvation establishing a kingdom in the Father's name, establishing justice. He's the servant that the prophets of old spoke so much about. He is the Son of God. There's so much writing and so much packed into this glorious statement. But we need to see that God doesn't just declare it to be so. He proves it to us. That's why Jesus goes to be tested, not even for his own sake, but for our sake that we may know who he truly is. Let's look at verse 1 to see more of the purpose of Jesus' testing. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the first thing I want us to see here is that Jesus was led there by the Spirit of God who had just anointed him. He guided him into the desert, into a place of danger and fasting. And this shows us that this scene is no accident. Jesus doesn't stumble over himself and find himself just in the desert all of a sudden. No, he's guided there. It shows divine purpose. It shows that God's hand of providence is here and working. God is sovereign even over this situation, and he has a reason for guiding Jesus into the desert. And we see, first of all, that this reason is to be tempted by Satan. God leads him there in order to be tempted, you might say. And this might make us a little bit uncomfortable. On the surface, it almost seems like God and Satan have partnered together. They're working together in order to tempt Jesus. They're partners, you might say. Well, that's not at all what's happening here. Let me briefly try to explain how we can see this a little bit better. This word here translated 
tempted is used often in the New Testament, and it has really two very broad meanings. On the one hand, it, it simply means to test or to prove, to see what uh, a, was in a person, you might say, or to see if they could overcome a challenge. But it also has another connotation, which is a bit more negative. It can mean to tempt, to allure somebody, to entice somebody to do something that they ought not do. And you might just ask, well, what's the difference between testing and temptation? And really, the main difference is intentionality. What does one intend to accomplish by the test or temptation? One who tempts, you might say, is hoping that you'll fail. They want you to succumb. They want you to give up. If I could give just a brief example of this, about once a week in my household, after eating dinner, I turn to my beautiful wife and I say, we should go and get some ice cream. Wouldn't that be great? And she, of course, being a little bit more responsible than me, says, no, we need to try to be healthy. We just ate a full meal. We shouldn't spend the money. And do you know what I do? I tempt her. I tell her about how many different flavors of ice cream there is. And I remind her how good the milkshakes are at Chick-fil-A. And I say, you just need a little bit. You can just get a tiny little bit, and I can get the large uh, with double fudge in it. I tempt her because I'm hoping that my wife will fail. I'm hoping her purpose of making me and her healthier will fail and she'll succumb. So you see, that's what Satan is in essence doing here. He wants Jesus to fail. He wants to see him succumb, to give in and to sin against God. And we even see this the way that Satan is described. He's given three different names here in this passage, three different names that tell us what Satan is all about. Well, first, he's called the tempter. This one's the most obvious. He's one who allures. He entices us to sin. He draws us in and tells us that we ought to do it. He's also called the devil. And if you don't know, that, that name simply means the accuser, the slanderer. That is to say that Satan doesn't just tempt you to do wrong. He tempts you, and then if you do it, he points his finger at you. And he accuses you before God. He gets you on his side. He makes you dirty with him. And then he stabs you in the back. It's because he's an accuser. And thirdly, he's called Satan. That is, adversary, an enemy. And he can't get past that one. It tells us this, the plain and simple truth. Satan is an enemy. He wishes to destroy the Son of God. He wishes to destroy God's people. He is our eternal enemy, you might say. Well, Satan is tempting, but God isn't tempting. If you were to look at James chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God tempts no man, but what does he do? He does test us from time to time. He does put us into circumstances which will reveal what is in us. But we always need to remember that it's not God's desire that we succumb to sin. God never hopes that you sin. He never entices with a desire that you will give in. No, Satan tempts. God is testing. And there's a world of difference between them. And there's another layer here that we need to see very briefly that shows how foolish Satan really is. He actually thinks he can win this battle. He's so blinded by pride and arrogance that he, he thinks he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Son of God to get him to sin 
But we need to remember who Jesus actually is. He's truly God, very God of very God. He is uh, uh, pure light, and in him is no darkness. And so while it is possible for Jesus to be tempted outwardly, that is to have temptation set before him, in no way is it possible for Jesus to be tempted uh, what theologians might call inwardly. That is, he doesn't desire sin. He doesn't uh, delight in sin the way you and I so often do. In reality, sin repulses Jesus. He, he hates it completely, and he hates it fully. And so while Satan may be hopeful here, he's way out of his league going up against Jesus. Well, look with me also at verse 2 to see a little bit more of the purpose of this testing. In verse 2 it says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, if I were to ask you, what do uh, fasting and temptation and wilderness and 40, the number 40, remind you of, as we see in this text? And you might come up with a few different answers. You might say, well, it reminds me of, of Adam when he was tempted by Satan. Some of those elements are there. You might say, well, it reminds me of Moses, or it reminds me of Elijah. Both of those men uh, went through a period of 40 days of testing and fasting. But I think there's another illusion that's being made here that is even more prominent than even those, although I do think those are in the background. And this illusion is being made to Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember Israel in the wilderness when they were saved from Egypt saved from their slavery and their bondage, when they were wandering through the desert, being tested by God, being led and prepared to enter into the land of Canaan. You can read those stories in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you might recall that the most prominent thing that happens during that testing period is that the people just complain all the time. They grumble and they moan and they whine and they test God and they try his patience. And again and again, sadly, they kept falling back into their idols. Think of the golden calf. or So many other times when they were tempted to leave their God. And that time of testing proved that their hearts were not truly devoted to God. But we need to see, for this text, that what Jesus is doing is actually very significant. It's a climactic moment. But the only way you can appreciate it is if you know the backstory, what it's alluding to. And that's really true with any great story, right? Perhaps you watch a great movie, and the ending is climactic, and it's epic, but it's only so because you've watched it from the very beginning, haven't you? You've seen the characters and the plot lines. You know what's at stake. And here, there's much at stake. Why? Jesus is standing in the place of his people. Jesus is standing where his people have historically and always will fall. And he's saying, I will carry and do what they could not do. Where the people of God fall, Jesus will be victorious. That's the purpose of this test. That's what's going on here. That's what we need to keep in our minds preeminently. Well, let's turn to the first test, test number one. Look with me at verse three. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And first we need to see that Satan is going to do something, and he's going to do it again and again and again in each one of these tests. 
is going to begin in exactly the same way, always, if you are a son of God. And it's not that Satan doubts that fact. It's not that he's telling Jesus, I don't believe you, and you have to prove it to me. No, I think rather what he's doing is a bit more nuanced. He is asking, what kind of son of God are you? Are you the kind of son of God who's going to be obedient to the Father's will? Are you the kind of son who's going to submit to your father? Or are you not going to submit? Are you going to go the path of pain that your father seems to be taking you on? Are you going to take for yourself a path of ease and comfort? What kind of son of God will you be, Jesus? That's what he's really saying to him. And after all, the father has called Jesus to the desert. Why? To be hungry for 40 days. To fast. To, in a sense, know true pain. To know what it is to be hungry as a man. To know what it is to suffer as a man. And in fact, this suffering is going to mark all of Jesus' life. He says in Luke 9, 58, The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's no comfort for me, Jesus says. This life will be one of misery. And so Jesus is just experiencing the pain of his mission. But you can see what Satan is doing here. He's saying, why don't you just make that a little bit easier? Why don't you just overcome the pain a little bit? Just make a little bit of bread, right? Certainly the father would want you not to be hungry if he really loved you. Just a little bit of bread. It won't hurt. And after all, you are the son of God. You, you have the power to do it, don't you, Jesus? Can you see the temptation he's playing? And we know that Jesus could do that. Jesus could do so much more than turn it into bread. If he really wanted to, he could make those stones a full-course meal and have soup and salad and steak and dessert. But no, what does he do instead? He says in verse 4, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And just as Satan keeps doing the same thing, Jesus is also going to, start a pattern as well. He's going to be quoting from the book of Deuteronomy for each and every one of these tests. And he quotes here from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if I could, let me read to you the fuller quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says this. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, what is Deuteronomy teaching us? What was God doing to the wilderness generation Israel in the wilderness, while well, he was testing them, testing their hearts, he says, to see what was in, in them, to find out what was really within their hearts. And what was his tool? Hunger, suffering. I made you hunger to see if you truly loved me. Essentially, what God was teaching to them is this lesson, that whatever I give to you, is better than anything that I might take away from you. 
Anything I give to you is better than what I might take away from you. I might take your food, but what will you always have? The perfect and powerful and glorious word of God. His word is better. That's the lesson. His word is more satisfying. His gospel is more precious. His will is more lovely in every way. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's word is the prime gift? A better question might be, will you believe that? In the moment when you perhaps are tested with suffering, when God takes away food or health or resources, or even a family member or friend, when he takes away, as a sovereign God can do, will you rejoice knowing that you always have God's perfect and eternal word. When Jesus is tempted this way, he answers perfectly. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's turn to our second test. Look at me at verses 5 through 6. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here, Satan is uh, perhaps moving the, uh, the field of advantage to a new place, you might say. He's going to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and he's taking Jesus up higher to the top of the temple. And he says something that's really quite shocking. He says, throw yourself down. O son of God, cast yourself from the top of the temple. And this time, Satan is a lot craftier, I think. He, he adds to his request, as ludicrous as it sounds, he adds to it Bible verses, right? Because we all know that if you want to make something sound better, you can just throw Bible verses at it. And, and people might actually believe that what you're saying is good if you just use enough Bible and scripture. Well, the place that Satan takes them to is Psalm 91. That's the place that he's quoting from. And actually, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm all about trusting in God. It's one of those psalms that you, you read it and it speaks of God as a, as a refuge and a shelter. And you can flee to him and he will protect you and he will care for you. One of the, the key verses in that psalm is this, Psalm 91, 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. It's a psalm about trust. But what is Satan asking Jesus to do? Abuse that trust. Test it. Abuse it. Act recklessly right now. Throw yourself off of this tower. Put God to the test. Because after all, if you really trusted in him, well, you wouldn't worry about anything, right? You wouldn't worry about anything at all. You would live any way that you want. Because after all, God is going to take care of you no matter what you do. And we see how silly that argument is. We see how he's, he's twisting Scripture in such an evil way. It's a classic example of trying to abuse Scripture to get somebody to act, well, stupidly, sinfully, foolishly. Well, what does Jesus say to him? Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And if I could, let me have a brief aside here to make a point of application. Notice what Jesus has done now twice. How does he fight 
against Satan? Well, he uses Scripture each and every time. And I I think we should take note of this and try to apply it to our own lives. Jesus' weapon is the Word of God. It's his preferred weapon to use in every scenario. And this shows us something important. That the Word of God is what tells us that we are to go to battle, and it's what we are to battle with. Our weapon is the Word of God. You could consider, for example, the the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Think about how many different pieces of armor you're told to wear. There's a bunch of them. And how many weapons are you given? Do you remember? Just one. You're given one weapon, and it is, in Ephesians 6, 17, we're told, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so when you go through temptation... What is it that you're drawing upon? What are you relying upon? What are you using? Are you using your own strength? Are you thinking to yourself each time temptation comes, I know I can control myself. I know I'll be able to get through this unscathed. I know I won't raise my voice and yell and scream like I've done a million times before. I know that I won't lust after that person, no matter how many times I may have done so prior. Do you rely upon yourself? And just assume it will be okay. Don't be foolish. Use the word of God. That is your weapon, God's holy scripture. Now let's get back to what Jesus says. He quotes Satan when he says, you shall not tempt God. He quotes, once again, Deuteronomy in the book, uh, the chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, 16. And this is the fuller quotation once again. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, you might be thinking, well, what happened at Massa? I don't don't know Massa. That's not one of the Bible stories I'm super familiar with. I don't remember that one in Sunday school. Well, let me give you a very brief description of what happened at Massa. It was one of those periods when Israel, once again, is wandering through the desert, and they're very thirsty. They have no water. And... You would think that knowing that God has rescued them, that he's promised to be with them, promised to support them and to give them all that they need, that all they needed to do was go to the Lord and say, God, please give us water. We're going to die without this water. Really be that simple. But what do they do instead? Instead, they grumble and they complain and they moan and they go to Moses and they yell at Moses for a little bit and they accuse Moses and by extension of Moses... They accuse God of cruelty. And they say this in Exodus 17 at Massah. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So let me ask you, what what do you see as the problem there? The problem is, is they don't trust God at all. Even though he's rescued them, even though he's cared for them every step of the way, They still don't trust in him at all. They still accuse him of cruelty. Oh, you just brought us out here to kill you. If the test of hunger proved that they didn't love God, then I think the test of water at Massah proved that they didn't trust God either. But what does Jesus say when tempted with a similar temptation to not trust in the Lord? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus does not need to test his father. Why? Because they're in a relationship of perfect 
and mutual and everlasting trust. Jesus says, I have no need. Do not test your heavenly Father. Then the third test. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. It says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And I think here's where Satan really reveals his hand. He shows what he's desperately after. He wants worship, doesn't he? But it's even worse than that. He wants worship from God himself. He wants the Son of God to bow down before him and worship Satan. And what does he do? He shows him two things. He takes him up to the high mountain, and he shows him two things here. One, all the nations of the world. And second, all the glory of all the nations. And what does he say? Jesus, if you just bow down to me, you can have them all. After all, the Bible does call Satan a prince in Ephesians 2. It calls him a ruler of this world in John chapter 12. Colossians 1 describes this world as a kingdom of darkness that Satan is a prince over. And so there's some sense in which Satan is not lying entirely. He does have some power over this world. But look at what Jesus says to him in verse 10. Look at his final response. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And you shouldn't be surprised where Jesus is going. He's going once again back to the book of Deuteronomy, back to God's word. And if you were to look at that chapter and see what is Deuteronomy 6 all about, it's all about preparation for the Israelites as they go into the land. It's now looking forward. As they're going into the land, this chapter gives them warnings, and in particular, two warnings. First, when you go into the land... Do not forget about God. Don't think that you just got here on your own. Don't forget about him. But secondly, and more importantly, don't become idolaters. Don't follow the the, the ways of the world. Don't follow the idols of the nations around you. Why? Because these were ways that men tempted to steal God's glory away from them. Think about what idolatry is. It's worship of man-made things. It's really, in one sense, worship of self. It's men worshiping what they can produce and create, what they can build and manufacture, what they can produce from their hands. It's ultimately taking glory that should be directed at God and then redirecting it at ourselves. That's what idolatry is, and that's what the Israelites did. They, they went into the land. If you know the scriptures, you know how much they failed. They went all the ways of the world. They didn't give God his glory, but instead they took it for themselves. Does that describe you? A person who takes and lives for their own glory, do you live for yourself? Maybe I could ask it in another way. Do you love the things of this world? If so, Today is the day to give those things up. Give up the idols of the world. Cast away the things that ensnare you. Put away the idols and instead redirect that glory back to the only one 
who deserves it. Worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Well, that's what Satan is tempting Jesus to do here. Take glory for yourself. Take it right now. And this, I think, may be Satan's best attempt. Because he's offering Jesus what Jesus actually came into the world to receive. Jesus came to this world to receive all glory, but only in the way that the Father intended. It would only come through the cross, only through shame, only through, through uh, death itself. And what is this, this temptation Satan is giving him? He's saying, just take it right now. Don't worry about the cross. Don't take the path of shame and misery that your father is taking you on. Instead, just receive it for yourself right this moment. Get glory. Take it. And I hope you're thankful that Jesus said no to that. I know that I am. There was only one way that Jesus would receive his glory. And it was by going to the cross. By giving up his life for his sheep by taking the road of humiliation, which ultimately would lead to all glory. Though it was painful, though humiliating, Jesus did it anyway, and he did it to please his heavenly Father. What kind of a son of God is Jesus? He's one who came to do his Father's will and to receive all glory through that means. Let me bring this to a close. This scene in the desert teaches us so much. It teaches us about Satan and his ways how he is crafty and deceiving. It also teaches us how we can be equipped by trusting in the Lord and casting off idols and relying upon the word of God in our temptations. It teaches us so much. But I think more importantly, it shows us Jesus. It shows us Jesus Christ who stands mightily in our place. That where God's people have always fallen and been lured away into sin, where you and I fall, Jesus does not. He stands victorious. Do you know today that you can trust in that Savior? I think that's really the key lesson from this, is because of this, you can trust in Jesus. Do you know that your Savior is mighty? Do you know that your Savior is trustworthy? Do you know and see that he is unbeatable and nothing can stand up against him? Trust in Jesus, and he will never fail. Let's pray.